Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the last dance, last chance for love edition as the Bengals play their final game of the 2020 season and try to end it with a three-game winning streak as they host the Baltimore Ravens. Coming up, Dave Lapham joins me to discuss the latest Bengals news and the possibility that A.J. Green is about to play his final game in a Bengals uniform. My one-on-one player interview this week is actually with a former player, Chris Collinsworth, as the Sunday Night Football analyst discusses T. Higgins, Joe Burrow, and what the Bengals should prioritize in the offseason. And in our Know the Foe segment, we'll discuss the Ravens with a former Baltimore linebacker who also played football and basketball at UC, Brad Jackson. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since the Queen's Gambit. Back in mid-November, after the Bengals' bye week, Joe Burrow was asked what he did with his time off, and Joe said that he relaxed and watched a lot of TV, including the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Well, my wife and I started watching it last week, and Joe Burrow has good taste. It's excellent. We've seen five of the seven episodes, and who knew that the story of a female chess prodigy could be so suspenseful? But don't take my word for it. Trust Joe Burrow and check out The Queen's Gambit. Now, let's get to football, beginning with my broadcast partner Dave Lapham, as we begin by taking care of something that was missing at the end of last week's win in Houston. Lap, after last week's victory in Houston... I realized we forgot something. We need to do it right now. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right, here it goes. Sam Hubbard forces the fumble. Margus Hunt recovers. And that should be Coffin Nails. Bam, 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 courtesy of Sam. <laughs> That's good. You know, Marty Brenneman occasionally forgot to say, and this one belongs to the Reds over the years, so right. I don't feel too bad about it. Uh, it was great to see the Bengals finally win a road game for the first time in a couple of years. They are 4-10-1. They're trying to end the season with a three-game winning streak as they host the Ravens this Sunday at Paul Brown Stadium. Let's hear from Jesse Bates, T. Higgins, and Zach Taylor on the importance of finishing strong. It's been really cool to see how we all have came together um, in these last, you know, weeks. A lot of teams don't do this. Um, a lot of teams, you know, check out uh, at this point, um, and, and we're and we're not the team that's that's doing it. You know, it's important at the end of the day, simply because you know um, it feels good. Nobody wants to lose at the end of the day, and you know, winning it just builds your confidence. Hopefully we can keep it going into the next season. You know, they need that result. You, you feel differently on Sunday evening and Monday morning. Um, you need that feeling because that, that feeling is, is kind of what um, gets you through the grind of the season. And, okay, we want we, all the things we did that led us to a win. And so let's go pick the grand scheme of things. We, we want to win the division. We want to go to the playoffs and win playoff games and play for Super Bowls. And, and – when you're a team that's in that position, winning two games in a row is not going to be a big deal for us. You know, you're going to be wanting to win five, six games in a row um, to create that momentum. But right now, for where we're at as a team for this season, winning two games in a row is important. And, and again, we got to continue to build on that momentum going into this weekend. All right. Is it really 
important to finish strong when you're having a lousy year. It is. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I, I remember starting 0-8. Worst, worst season I ever experienced as a player. 0-8 start. And we when we went 4-4, four and four, I felt like we'd accomplished something. It was like two seasons. The first one, you just wanted to bury it as deep as you could in the deepest grave you could find. And then when you ended up respectable with a 4-4 four and four mark to finish it off, you know, you felt like at least you didn't quit. You didn't wallow in your pity. You know, you did something about it. You pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. And, you know, and I know fans, they're, all they want to do is talk about, you know, as high a pick as you can get. But players and coaches, you're fighting for your professional life. I remember coming home and saying to my wife, oh, and eight. I, I got to make sure that I put, do everything I possibly can to put as good a tape as I possibly can out there because I want to play longer. I want to stay in this league as long as I can. And that's what players are doing. You're fighting for your life. 1% of the population, you know, plays in the National Football League. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a right. It, it's, it's a total privilege. And, man, you want to do it as long as you can. You're going to fight with everything you've got to do it as long as you possibly can when you're a player and a coach. So this idea of tanking, this idea of let's lose to get to it is so foreign. I mean, you're going to be out in the street if you're part of that quicker than you can say whatever. <laughs> So surrender for Sewell or putrid for Panay is not do it for you. <laughs> it's not, not going to cut it. You know, and, and as great as that player may be, and Sewell may be great, and we got a great one in Anthony Munoz, in my opinion, the best to play. Both Super Bowl appearance, appearances, he was the anchor at left tackle. Also had the other member of the Mexican connection to in there at guard as well, though, Max Montoya. So it's not just one guy in the offensive line. One guy makes a huge difference, but – like Mike Brown always used to say during contract negotiations, um, we don't have any numbers, few touchdowns, um, catches. We don't have any stats. You know, we're, we're just evaluating you on the overall performance of how you're playing with the other guys up front. And that's the, that's the reality of it. That's the nature of the beast. And, and you draft accordingly, you know. So, I mean, one, one offensive tackle does not a, a team make. And honestly, I think we were in the same school. I, I would, even if it is the third pick in the draft, I would explore trading back and seeing, you know, how far back you would have to go and to accumulate another real strong option to make yourself better with multiple choices in the draft. If you can increase your odds of, of pick two tackles, if you can increase your odds of finding one, I'm all for that. As long as they're not named Obwehi and Fisher. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up, though, because I had a thought this week about the draft. Because right now the Bengals have fallen to the fifth spot. They could drop as low as 10 mm -hmm. if they win on Sunday. Think back to last year. If the Bengals had won that overtime game in Miami, next to last game of the regular season, they would have probably fallen out of the top spot and would not have wound up with Joe Burrow. And fans would have been marching to Paul Brown Stadium with torches and pitchforks, and we would have been upset about it. I mean, we had our hearts set on Joe Burrow. Well, had that happened, they would have drafted Justin Herbert. Absolutely. And I prefer Burrow partly for his leadership, partly because I think long-term he will be the better of the two. But had they wound up with Justin Herbert, that would have been okay, as it turns out. He's been tremendous. He has been. And, and you just, you know, you just, you, you never do really know. And, uh, I mean, you know, when the Bengals in 2011, with the fourth pick of the draft, they took A.J. Green. They didn't take Andy Dalton. They took him in the second round 
and and he turned out fine. It, it, it it's certainly not an exact science. It's not like you know. Uh, where you're dealing with computers and this computer has more gigabytes or whatever, and you're going to you know, r- rank them accordingly. There's all kinds of variables. It's, the, it's human beings. It's the brain. It's the, it's the human body. I mean, there's all kinds of variables. So there, the draft is the most inexact science there is in the world. And then when a guy gets drafted, the development of him, what's the mix like? Okay, is it a good is it a good situation? I mean, Kenny Anderson often says, if I had been drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, I may not have made it ever. I may not have made it coming out of Augustana. I get drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals that have Paul Brown as the head coach and Bill Walsh as my position coach. Are you kidding me? Two Hall of Fame guys that are brilliant? So that gave me more than a leg up. And so it is. It's all about the whole circumstance, you know, um, getting the right guy to fit your system properly. Uh, is he going to be developed properly? There's a million things that go into it, but having talent obviously is first and foremost. With his first catch on Sunday, T. Higgins will set a new Bengals rookie record with 68 receptions, breaking the mark he shares with Chris Collinsworth. And if T. has 92 receiving yards against the Ravens, he will join Chris and A.J. Green as the only Bengals rookies to reach 1,000 yards. Here's offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. He's run some really good routes against some really good corners, and that's really that's an encouraging thing uh, for a young player. He's had a, a success against good corners, too. Um, there's some things he's got to keep, continue to get better at. Uh, he's got to continue to get stronger. Um, but he's going to be a force in this league, I think, to be reckoned with. And, um, and I never viewed him as a rookie, as strange as that sounds. There was never a moment where – he felt like a rookie to me. You know, after we got through training camp, I was like, all right, this guy's ready to go, and he's going to play a lot for us. And, um, you know, hopefully he gets a handful more catches and yards, and, and he can be up there as the best rookie receiver the Bengals have had. That'd be pretty cool, uh, pretty cool honor uh, for him to, to come out of the gates as a rookie like that. 92 receiving yards might be tough against Baltimore to get to 1,000, but, you know, knock on wood, unless something awful happens, and it won't. He will get the catch to break uh, the the receptions record he shares with Chris Collinsworth. What's impressed you most about T's rookie year? You know, quickly on some of his numbers, he leads the AFC as a rookie receiver in catches and yards, and his six touchdowns are are up there as well. Um, But overall, third in catches, second in yards uh, amongst rookies, which is pretty impressive. The thing that impresses me overall, Dan, is the thing that Brian Callahan talked about. She's looking at me, 6'4", 215 plus. And you think a big guy like that, not going to really be a good route runner. But man, he sinks his hips, gets in and out of cuts, gets separation. He's got a little wiggle. I mean, I, he's, he turned a couple of good cornerbacks around when he's in the slot and he's running down the field. They don't know if he's going to run a post or a flag route. And, and he just, he, he's turned hip, he's turned those guys around. And they're good cornerbacks. So I'm thinking, man, this dude, he's got, he's got some physical ability. And then He's so big at 6'4", 215 plus, broad shoulders, long arms. So he's got, you know, the contested catch, uh, the, the big catch radius where he'll go up and battle people, strong hands. He's got a lot going on. And, and the other big thing that impresses me is his football IQ because, like we talked about, three different quarterbacks have won games for the Bengals. So he's had three different guys thrown to him as a rookie. And every one of them he's gotten on the same page with very quickly because they all know that he – is a stickler for detail on his assignments. He knows them cold. He understands why he's doing what he's doing in the big picture of everything else. 
and they know where he's supposed to be. They know he'll be where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be there, and how he gets there is going to be right. And they have trust and confidence. And those are the two big things between quarterback and receiver, like any relationship. You have to have confidence in the other person, and primarily you have to trust the other person. And that's what's going on with T. Higgins and his quarterbacks. His favorite athlete as a kid was A.J. Green. Chances are this will be A.J.'s final game in a Bengals uniform, which saddens me greatly. Yep, yep. I'm surprised that A.J. did not have a big year. Me too. I thought for sure he was going to be healthy and he was going to be the A.J. Green that we were accustomed to seeing uh, prior to two years ago. Yeah, me too. I, I really uh, I, I really am. And I, I, I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if he got in his own head. I don't know if physically – you know, it, it just – he never could, you know, just turn the engine over quite the same. It, it, it just – it looked like he lost some of his quickness and explosiveness and his suddenness. And that's going to come with age. And you compound the age with the fact that he lost he, – he sat out so long at a late stage of his career. I, I think that, uh, you know, that, that compounded the, the problems and the issue there a little bit. And, and I think, you know, frustration started to set in for him some. And his body language showed that, you know, quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's uh, the thing is, though, when you talk to any of the teammates or his coaches still, the first thing they all say is, man, he works so hard. And he does, every single practice, A.J. empties the effort bucket, never mind games. So it is. It's sad to, sad to see that, it, that it's maybe unfolding, you know, the, the way that it is to the conclusion of his uh, career here in Cincinnati because it was brilliant, not just good. It was brilliant. In last week's game at Houston, Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson was incredible. But so was Bengals quarterback Brandon Allen. He completed 78% of his passes, threw for 371 yards, and had a passer rating of 126.5. The Bengals also scored a season-high 37 points. Here are Jesse Bates and offense coordinator Brian Callahan on the Bengals' current starting quarterback. Very impressed. Just the way... Um, how poised he, he always is, you know, throughout the locker room. I, I don't think I've ever seen him say a word um, until he became the starting quarterback. So, you know, I just I just kind of like the way he goes about his work. Um, doesn't really say much. Um, but you can count on him uh, to make a play. Uh, he's very tough. I think he's playing with a hurt leg or something like that right now. Um, and then he took a shot at the end of the game. Uh, but he continues to fight and put, you know, his front foot forward. Um, you know, always giving us a I'm advantage to win a football game. He's just got this way about him. He's a, he's a football player. He understands it. Uh, he knows what it's supposed to look like. Uh, he knows how to prepare. He knows how to take things from the meeting room to the field. He knows his weaknesses as well, and he knows how to how to account for those. And the more he's gotten to play, the more that those those skills have been sharpened. I think every week he goes out there, he's gotten better, just like most players do that haven't played a lot. But in particular, for a quarterback, you don't get a lot of opportunities, and so when you do. You usually get better in a hurry, and I think that he's done that. Brandon Allen made himself some money last week, I would think, and uh, if he plays well on Sunday against Baltimore, you got to think that he'll be welcome back as Joe Burrow's backup quarterback next year. You'd think he'd be in high consideration. I mean, uh, he had a, a remarkable game. Uh, there, there's no question about it, like we said earlier. I mean, he was a he was a straight-A quarterback. He was anticipatory, and he was accurate, and – there's a three-play sequence, Dan, actually a four-play sequence. Uh, the Bengals are, are – uh, it's a 17-17 football game in the third quarter, and at the 747 mark, third and one, he goes 31 yards 
to Higgins uh, on the deep left sideline, and it's nullified with an offensive pass interference. Perfect throw. Perfect. Leading him just right. If that counts, he's over 400 yards passing. They took that away with the penalty. I mean, he's over 400 yards passing right there. So they come back, and they're they're penalized. So they're at their 24-yard line after the penalty on sample at the OPI, third and eleven. He hits A.J. Green 14 yards to the right sideline. Uh, Blanketed. Yeah, but he had the height advantage. He did the contested catch thing. And looking at the tape, they ran four curl routes, spread the field, distributed them equally across the field. All of them go 12, 13 yards and hook up. So he had four options to look at. Goes to A.J., likes that mismatch with the the size advantage. And it's a 14-yard completion. Now it's first and 10. He goes cover two, 42 yards down the middle field to Alex Erickson, outruns the linebacker, safety split, boom, 42 yards down the middle. So now it's first and 10 at the 20 at the red zone. Going to get man coverage in the red zone. They, they have a call for man coverage, a little crossing route. Higgins goes to the back corner of the end zone. He makes another, drops another perfect dime that they have to initially the officials blow it, and they look at it again, and, uh, and it's a touchdown. And four straight throws right there. One of them didn't count because of the OPI. But he had three plays, 76 yards, and a touchdown on three straight throws. You add the 31-yarder, four straight throws, he threw for 107 yards, and every single one of them was a dime. That's a microcosm of the game the guy played. That drive was phenomenal. The answer, the response that they had after the OPI, instead of third and 11, oh, Darber's down, I mean, boom, and then attack, boom, boom. It it was impressive the way he, uh, he drove the football team. Big plays, chunks. They had eight plays of over 20 yards. That's the most they've had in, in a game this year. Haven't come close to having eight chunk plays in one game. What stood out to me was his touch. Mm-hmm. I mean, he remember early this year when they blew the big lead against the Colts and we were talking about, man, the, just the touch that Phillip Rivers has. It's yep. not always a fastball. Sometimes he's just kind of letting feather. the guy run under it. A little feather. Just, yeah, exactly. To me, that's what Brandon Allen showed last Sunday. And you know, shoot, the guy threw seven touchdown passes in an SEC game for uh, Arkansas. Right. Uh, he's still the all-time leading record holder for touchdown passes, and they had some good quarterbacks at Arkansas. He throws a nice ball. He does, and and uh, and like everybody's saying, the anticipation. I mean, he's throwing it to spots that the receivers eventually get to, and, and that's the key in the National Football League. You basically have to, quote, throw guys open with the anticipatory stuff. And, and he's got a great feel for that. And the other thing, the more I see him on Zoom calls and the more I see him on the field, his pulse is always even keel. Yeah. He never, ever gets upset or, dis- or distraught or whatever. Yeah. I mean, whether he's hurt, whether he's got three straight completions, two straight incompletions, two straight interceptions, the dude is the same. I mean, his, his emotional approach to the game and his poise and his presence is pretty darn strong. It really is. Yeah, the first thing Jesse Bates mentioned, poise. The first thing Trey Hopkins mentioned, poise. Yeah. That's what stands out to the teammates. Yep, I mean, and, and he is. I mean, he's a, he's a flatliner guy, man. There's, there's no there's – no, uh, well, you, you take uh, – do an EKG of him in a two-minute drill, it's the exact same as if he's sleeping at night. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Joe Burrow doesn't tweet often, but when he does – it has an impact, mm-hmm. and on the day after Christmas, he posted footage of himself slowly walking across the room with no assistance following knee surgery. I asked T. Higgins and Brian Callahan for their reaction. I was ready for him to come back right then and there. But, uh, yeah, man, um, it's great to see that his progress is coming along. 
coming along good. And, you know, I can't wait for him to get back here and, you know, get things started back up. Yeah, I did see it. Uh, and it doesn't, it wasn't, uh, it just sounds like Joe, looks like Joe, you know. Um, everything that he's done since since, he, since he's arrived here is, uh, has been at an accelerated pace. And it's no surprise to me that, that he's, he's on the schedule that he is for his return. Uh, and I know he's going to attack that. Uh, just like he's attacked every minute that he's been here uh, for the football portion. So Joe is wired a particular way, and that's kind of just how he lives his life. And that's that, that doesn't surprise me one bit. Well, at, at LSU, they think he can walk on water. And he came close last year. And this wasn't on water, but it was across a room with no assistance, no cane, no walker, no anything like that. It's great to see. It was. I wish he just had a red suit and a white beard, you know, I mean, because it was a Christmas present <laughs> extraordinaire. Uh, but, yeah, he and, and really, he was very, very upright. So and he was he was walking without a limp. And what he was doing there is I had, you know, minor rehab after meniscus tears, and those sort of things. You want to start firing the muscle groups as fast as you can. So he's he's doing that. He's trying to fire his quads, hamstrings, everything around that damaged area. When you start strengthening all those muscle groups, that uh, helps the rehab percentages immensely. And there's no doubt that he is going to be a maniacal, fanatical rehab patient. I think he's my, – my prediction is he's going to blow away, you know, the they say, okay, he'll be back by the opener. He'll probably be back by the beginning of training camp. He's one of those kind of guys. So Carson Palmer suffered his injury later, mm-hmm. similar severity, Yep, and was back for the third preseason game. Yep. How did he look when he came back? You know, Carson was never a real, you know, mobile, mobile guy. He was more of a, you know, a, a stationary type pocket passer. Yeah, classic pure, pure pocket passer. Pure pocket passer, absolutely. So, um, you know, a jo- Joe's a little bit different. Joe's got more athleticism. Um, and, and Carson, I think, for his type of game, it was easier for him to come back sooner because of that. Uh, he wasn't necessarily changing direction violently. You know, he would set up in the pocket. But when he set up and you push off that back foot, you know, you're, you're dropping and then you redirect and, and you're putting a lot of pressure on that, uh, on that knee, whether it be the follow-through or the, you know, the plant foot. So um, he, he, looked, he looked fine. But again, he didn't even. I, I I can't tell you the number of times I saw Carson Palmer run, you know. So it it a little bit different dynamic there. I think in terms of style of play, um, but again, medical advancements are significant from when Carson Palmer had his surgery. I mean, they're much better, and and I think I think Joe is gonna, I think he's gonna make a full complete. You know, it might be one of those deals where it would be like a bionic thing. You know, geez, he looks like he's stronger and faster than he was before surgery. You're seeing a lot of guys have surgery, and it's like, wow, they even look stronger than before they had the surgery. It's it's crazy what they're doing with, you know, sports medicine these days. I remember with Carson, they used a cadaver's yep. ligament. Yep. I, do, are they still doing that these days, or I, I think they now, take it from a different part of the body? Yeah, now they're taking it from, like, in, in the part of the Achilles or part of another – tendon or you know the quad tendon yeah they're taking it rather than a cadaver because i mean you know a cadaver body is obviously dead tissue you know and and uh if you can get tissue that's not like that your chances of having a more complete and successful recovery might be better so that's another improvement now time for this week's one-on-one interview 
As Lap and I mentioned, T. Higgins is on the verge of breaking a team record that Chris Collinsworth set 39 years ago, most receptions in a season by a Bengals rookie. I spoke to Chris about that and more this week, beginning with the second-round draft pick out of Clemson. T. Higgins is special. I mean, he has the ability to go up with those contested catches. He has big, strong hands going over the middle. Seems to have no fear whatsoever. Um, it's, it's amazing how easily these guys catch the ball. I'd like to play with their gloves on just one time. I'd like to just try it. I mean, they literally just, it just sticks in their hands. I, it's, it's, he's a big, powerful guy. Um, and he's going to be very worthy of hopefully carrying that new record on for about the next 39 years or so. He's six, four. Tremendous athletic ability. Do you marvel at the size and speed of the guys that are playing the position you used to play? You know, it's a different thing. It's almost like, uh, you know, Dan Ross was about the size of, of T. Higgins back in the day, and he was playing tight end on our team. Uh, but the guys are just so big and physical and still are able to maintain that speed. You know, with T, the one thing that I, I see watching him. Um, is that, you know, he, he, I don't know what his 40 yard dash time was. I'm sure it was, was good, but with a lot of taller guys and those long striders, the, 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 the more they're down the field, uh, the, the faster they get, you know, 40 yard dash usually favors the small quick guys who get the first 10 yards quickly. They're good out of the start, but the great, deep ball receivers that I see are the ones that have that long stride that gobble up a lot of yards after they get started. Cause you're never, it's always changing speeds. You know, it's like a pitcher in baseball. You're just trying to change speeds on how you approach the game. And man, when he hits the jets on the back end of some of that stuff, and then his ability to go up and high point that ball, he's, he's going to be special. We're talking to Chris Collinsworth. Let's talk about Joe Burrow. After his injury, you tweeted, I love Joe Burrow, and I haven't even met him yet. What do you love? I love the fact that, A, he's from Ohio. B, he's given Bengals fans a new form of hope. I mean, a hope that not just will they be good again, but they have the chance to be great again, and they have a chance to win a Super Bowl. Um, and I just love his demeanor. I love the way he carried himself from the first day that he came to Cincinnati. He was all business all the time. And I think at the quarterback position, you really need somebody with that level of buy-in right from the start, because then the guys around him start thinking, oh man, that, that rookie quarterback's going to study that hard. I better start getting in my playbook here a little bit too. So I, I think that he represents sort of the work ethic of Cincinnati uh, in a way that uh, really makes us all proud. And when he got hurt, I was like, oh, no. And I remember Brandon Graham telling me the story from the Philadelphia Eagles. Apparently, it was kind of a borderline late hit or big hit or something. And and, uh, Joe Burrow turned around and looked at the referee and didn't get the flag. And he just turned back to Brandon Graham and he said, you know, when I'm the goat, I'm going to get that call. And, <laughs> and I mean, Brandon Graham said it was one of the great lines they ever heard, but they were so impressed with how tough Joe Burrow was that they almost killed him that day. I mean, you'll remember that game 
they got some shots on him like you could not believe. And Joe just came back and asked for more and kept delivering. Uh, he's the kind of guy you want leading your franchise. Chris, I was looking at your TV schedule this year. You've had Russell Wilson a couple of times, Aaron Rodgers three times, Patrick Mahomes three times, Tom Brady a couple of times. In the current NFL, do you need one of those guys to contend for a Super Bowl title? I think so. It doesn't mean you can't. You go back to the Baltimore Ravens uh, winning it in 2000, based almost entirely on their defense. Uh, but sure is a lot easier path. You know, it really is. I mean, those guys are the ones that are going to touch the ball every single time. It seems like a simple concept, but it's really the truth. The, the guy who's going to handle the football every single play and even on running plays, you know, the ability to play fake or bootleg fake or whatever, at least put the fear of what those great quarterbacks can do down the field. It's just awfully hard to win without one of those top eight, 10 guys. The 2020 season is about over for the Bengals. What would you prioritize in terms of the draft and free agency? Uh, uh, offensive line play. I, I, I just think that they've got a franchise quarterback. I hope to goodness, knock on wood, that he comes out of this thing okay. Um, but, you know, and as good as T. Higgins has been, um, you know, I think you've got to prioritize some of those higher draft picks now to try and make sure we keep him alive for as long as possible. Um, and it's going to be, uh, who knows what the start of the season will be. I hope that Joe comes along and is ready right from the start. But if not, uh, you've got to, you've got to put yourself in position to win at that offensive line position. I played with some teams that went to the Super Bowl and we always had great offensive linemen, you know, led by Anthony Munoz all those years. You've become the majority owner of Pro Football Focus. You've created about 100 jobs in downtown Cincinnati. Do you marvel at the interest out there in data where pro and college football is concerned? Yeah, I mean, it's it's America's distraction right now. You know, I, I think it really is that we're all, whether it's fantasy football or now with legalized gambling, that people need and want more and more and more information. And they're not just watching football anymore. They're participating in it. The fantasy football leagues are passionate. They just came out of their championship round. And I can't go anywhere without somebody asking me some questions. And now uh, the more and more that we're able to go on our cell phones and people are going to be able to to make wagers on, do you think Joe Burrow will be over or under 300 yards this week? It just adds another reason to watch football, which is good for all of us. Uh, but it's it's been a pretty amazing ride with PFF. And I'm glad we were able to bring it to Cincinnati and, and bring and hire people right here from town. Uh, we're really proud of it. So the season ends on Sunday for the Bengals against the 10 and 5 Ravens. You've had a couple of Baltimore games on TV this year. What would the Bengals need to do to have a shot at pulling off the upset and ending the year with a three-game winning streak? You know, they've they've pulled off a few things against the Ravens in the past, right? We've seen some of their clutch wins, but you've got to find a way at this point to stop Lamar. You know, he has just proven to be uh, back in form. I, I never thought that he looked quite right in the early part of the season. I'm not sure what it was. He just wasn't quite as dynamic with the ball in his hands. 
And yet now over the past couple of weeks, I've, I'm, you're starting to see that MVP look in his eyes. And so as impossible as it sounds, you have to stop him. You have to keep him from getting on the edge of your defense. If they can keep him in the pocket, uh, make him win the game throwing the football from the pocket, then you'll always have a chance against the Ravens. But the minute he gets out and he is free to run and scramble and, and find Hollywood Brown down the field, you've got big problems. So he's the key. Appreciate your time, Chris. Sorry your record had to fall, but it's being broken by a great rookie in T. Higgins. You told me he's one of the great guys on the team, so I'm fired up to meet him. I have not met him. But if you see him, please pass along my congratulations. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled for him, uh, and he's, he's earned it. I mean, that's the great thing about it. I've watched him play. I went back and watched some of the video from uh, PFF, and he has earned uh, the right to wear that crown, and, and I'm really happy for him. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. Whenever the Bengals play the Ravens, I like to catch up with my friend Brad Jackson, the former UC football and basketball player who won a Super Bowl ring as a Ravens linebacker in 2000 and has been doing some media work since retiring from the NFL. Brad joined us this week on the Bengals Game Plan Show, and I started our conversation by asking him if the Ravens' current four-game winning streak has folks in Baltimore believing that this team is a legitimate contender to advance to the Super Bowl. I think we're always legitimate at when you can run the football and play good defense. And you guys know that. Like when, when you don't turn the football over and you can run the football and obviously play great defense, which is a staple and part of the foundation here in Baltimore, it absolutely means that you have a chance in the playoffs. And when you have a dynamic weapon as far as Lamar Jackson, uh, who though he's not having the passing numbers that a lot of people would talk about, uh, you know, as being, quote-unquote, that quarterback, he, he is still an explosive and a former MVP as he was last year. So whenever you have all those components in place, it is something that you have to take the Baltimore Ravens seriously. Um, and that's why in the last four games, you know, they're averaging almost 37 points, uh, 230 yards rushing per game. Obviously, those two are tops in the league. Um, and Lamar has just, you know, played phenomenal. Uh, with 12 touchdowns, uh, you know, and he's actually thrown a couple more. We're actually doubled up with eight passing and four rushing, um, you know, to his credit, and he's turned it on. And you get a lot of people, and we've had that discussion here in Baltimore about, you know, the, the, the level of competition because, you know, at the end of the season, you know, they have had to play the teams minus the Cleveland Browns uh, that, you know, the Ravens eat the win out there a couple weeks ago in Cleveland. But minus that, you know, with the Jags, Jaguars and, you know, the uh, the Giants and, and obviously the Bengals, you know, being without Joe Burrow, uh, but who are obviously playing well. And we all know how that rivalry ends whenever it's Baltimore picks, uh, whenever it's Baltimore and Cincinnati. It's almost like Baltimore-Pittsburgh, uh, except that the Bengals have, especially in Cincinnati, as you guys are well aware of, has always found a way to somehow throw a hitch in the Ravens season. Um, and, you know, when you go back, you look at the course of history, you know, the Bengals, no matter what the record was, no matter what was happening, when it came time to play in Cincinnati at the end of the year, they've always found a way to uh, to give the Ravens everything they can handle more, which is why the Ravens are 
are a pedestrian nine and fifteen in the nasty natty. So it's <laughs> it's very concerning. This team is not looking past the Bengals as they may have in years past. Brad, uh, the the Baltimore Ravens, the only team in the NFL that has averaged rushing more yards than throwing in the game. Uh, the only team. They're rushing it for 177.8 per game, first in the league, 5.3 per attempt, first in the league. They're throwing it for 174.5, 31st in the league. In this era, that's that's almost incredible. And the only other team that's close is New England. They're running it for 145.3 and throwing it for 176.8. And, and it's working, obviously. I mean, this, this Baltimore team, instead of worrying about personnel and formations and packages in the passing game, man, Baltimore does it in the running game. Watching a little tape, the first time the Bengals played, Baltimore was doing a lot of you know a lot of bodies between the hash marks. Now they're spreading it out, and and they're getting running lanes by spreading the field. I mean, they can do anything they want in that running game, can't they? You know, you talk about a lap. You know, when it's the first time in NFL history, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it, where you know three team, three players on one team. You know, that's Lamar, Gus Edwards, and J.K. Dobbins, the rookie from up there at that school up north in Cincinnati, um, <laughs> who is who has ran the ball really, really well. He's actually tied the rookie record here in Baltimore with seven touchdowns and has an opportunity to break it. Um, but those three guys have all ran for over 600 yards right. and all of them have over six touchdowns. So, you know, I think prior to this last four weeks, and, and again, it's one of those things that you're cautiously optimistic about, you know, from, from Hordy's question is, yeah, they, they can line up and play with anybody. Um, but when they had those those playoff teams early in the year, the Kansas Cities, and they lost to New England in a rainstorm, you know, the Ravens weren't playing that well early on uh, against a good competition. So is it part of the fact that it's the end of the year and, and you guys know a lot of guys have checked out, you know, they're trying to just stay healthy. They're, you know, they're kind of tired of all the COVID tracing and everything that, you know, a lot of teams have put in place in order to get this season you know, underway, and, and, you know, a lot of guys have pretty much figured, okay, we're not going to the playoffs, you know, kind of brother-in-law, as, as, you know, as it's called sometimes, or is it that they are, are playing better at the right time, um, or is it part of, and I think some of it has to do with a lot of hype early on with Greg Roman actually getting a lot of, you know, media press about potential head coach, potential head coach, and they were trying to throw the ball and trying to, you know, because we all know if you want to be a head coach in this league, you have to have – your quarterback has to have numbers. And, unfortunately, that doesn't mean numbers with his legs, as Lamar Jackson has done, because every other 31 teams out there or whoever would be looking to hire Greg Roman as a head coach is going to say, you're not bringing Lamar Jackson with you. So, yeah, that offense translates phenomenally in Baltimore with the running attack because you have Lamar Jackson. You're not going to go to Atlanta – you know, or the Jets, which are probably going to fire, you know, Adam Gase and say, hey, we're going to do the same thing with, with Matty Ice and Matt Ryan or, or, you know, Sam Darnold. That's not going to happen. So I think there was a little bit of a time in there for watching film, and I've had that discussion here in the media, where even the fans are saying, just run the football, run the football. And I think it may be a, a trifecta of, you know, the team getting back to what they do best, which is, as you said, run the football on anybody, anywhere. Um, at any time with that triple-headed monster of Lamar Jackson, Gus Edwards, and J.K. Dobbins, and even Mark Ingram is still in there waiting in the wings to get a couple carries here and there, especially in the goal line area. Our guest is Brad Jackson. The first time these teams played, Baltimore had 15 quarterback hits and seven sacks of Joe Burrow, and since then they traded for Yannick Ngakwe. Has he had a big impact? 
No, he, he hasn't had the impact I think that they were hoping for uh, as of yet. Um, and, and, you know, you look at it, when you look at our numbers, you know, we, we you know, he has eight sacks, but uh, he's only had two since I became, since he became a Raven. Um, and, you know, you talked about that first game out there, uh, you know, with the Bengals, um, you know, what was it, seven sacks I think they had. I think yep. Patrick Queen, the rookie first rounder, had a phenomenal game, even had a scoop and score for a touchdown. You know, Wink Martindale, who, well, I honestly believe, obviously, we know he's from Dayton, went to, you know, Defiance College out there, and obviously the former Bearcat coach was my linebacker coach, you know, uh, uh, with the Bearcats. I think Wink is, is probably primed to get a head coaching job. I think uh, the opportunity is going to be there for him with the Jets. We have some synergies with the Jets. Uh, their general manager, Joe Douglas, obviously was here. I think he may have an opportunity with uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He kind of fits everything that, that – Jacksonville is looking for um so I think that's a more real, of a realistic opportunity and you know he's going to dial it up and get after you know he got after Joe Burrow the first time and he's going to you know get after any quarterback out there especially to see early on if they've made the adjustments uh for all the quarterback hits and pressure uh, that the defense uh, put on way back in week five with uh with the 27-3 victory uh for the Ravens. In terms of uh, passing numbers, no surprise that you know the only guy that shows up in the top fifty in receiving yards is Andrews, the great tight end, six hundred seventy-four receiving yards. He's got seven touchdown catches though. Hollywood Brown has six, and the guy that I'm interested in, Des Bryant, six catches, two of them are touchdowns. He's the uh, fifth fastest wide receiver to have seventy-five career touchdown receptions, uh, number of games played. Jerry Rice, Moss, Harrison, T.O., and Des Bryant. What has Des Bryant added to the football team? What's he been like? Been up and down. Honestly, he actually quit a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys got that out there. He came in and it was against the Cowboys, and he was out on the field in warmups, dancing around, doing his thing, and and then they pulled him off the field and they said he had a positive test, like and he's on the field, like dapping up and high fiving right. guys. It was a very very weird situation, and then he he had to leave the stadium. He tweeted out that he was done, he quit, and then, you know, a bunch of people got in his ear, and, and I think, you know, cooler heads probably prevailed that, you know, it's better to, to stay and, and get a couple more game checks uh, and be a part of a team that potentially could go to the playoff uh, versus versus ultimately hang him up, considering he had been out of the league, you know, for a couple of years. And I think, as you said, Lap, I think that was his first touchdown since, what, 2017, almost two years. Um, so he, he's – He's brought a, a veteran presence, but as far as schematically, you know, he, he's he's a big wide receiver, but he's not getting open against people. He's not, he, you know, there's nobody that is actually fearing him, stretching the field. Um, you know, he's he's been another guy that has caught a lot of football, um, and that's what I think they're hoping for with consistency because the wide receivers from Hollywood Brown, you know, obviously Willie Sneed, they've all had their moments tweeting after games that, you know, they're not being used enough and they don't get the football enough. Meanwhile, you know, they're, they're dropping more footballs, uh, you know, than, than I would right now if I was to get out there on that field. So um, there's, there's been that situation that has kind of been frustrating uh, internally and externally with the wide receivers not being consistent, not getting open, not catching the ball. Uh, Kadri Ishmael, you know, who does some media stuff and, and my former teammate, uh, here with Baltimore has been very, very outspoken about it, and I take his word as a, as a wide receiver in the NFL. Um, and so, you know, your point is correct, Lat, that 
Mark Andrews is his blankie. That's his line. If if you eliminate and, and the game plan, which has been it's been out there, and teams have used it to success against the Ravens, where if your defensive line, and your defense end, keep Superman in the phone booth, they don't get rush past the quarterback and give him those running lanes because that's where Lamar is absolutely destroying teams right now where the defense ends are getting pushed past him. He steps up. Now you have linebackers and DBs coming out of coverage thinking they got to go get a guy that's running a 4-3-4-4. And then all of a sudden he's flicking it to somebody down the field. But if those defensive ends and D-line are keeping him contained and then you're eliminating uh, Mark Andrews, his, his favorite weapon, um, he struggles at completing passes consistently, consistently, excuse me, outside the numbers. Um, and those wide receivers just haven't gotten open um, as much. And with the times that they have gotten open, they've dropped the football in key moments. So um, there is a formula, you know, for the Bengals. And like I said, obviously, you know, the, you know, them playing at home is always something that has, you know, Bengal bitten the Ravens, so to speak. You know, that last game or those those late games uh, in the season uh, in, in the Queen City, which have always bode well for for the Bengals. And it's it's been something that's kind of been a thorn in Coach Harbaugh's side. Um, you know, this is definitely a very, very important game. And it, it's, 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 it, the guys here are not taking this lightly like, oh, it's the Bengals, like the Jaguars and the Giants. They're, they're taking this very seriously as if they're, they're going to play, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers this week. And, and that's, that's been the mindset in the building the last couple of days. Here's an invitation to join Lap and me for the New Year's Day edition of the Bengals Pep Rally Show, Friday from 3 to 6 on ESPN. 1530. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde. Happy New Year and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.